Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month. This is Steve Anderson. Protecting your practice and running a profitable, productive practice is a never-ending process. Too often we don't pay attention to many of the details until faced with a crisis, and then we wake up. With more than 40 years of comprehensive senior business management experience and success, our mentor this month has seen just about everything. In fact, he's responsible for preventing and uncovering numerous frauds, embezzlement, waste, and or abuse in nonprofits, medicine, and dentistry, with cases encompassing individual losses of more than $2 million. For the last 20 years, his team has provided business advice and systems to hundreds of practices across the United States and Canada in the areas of fraud prevention and detection and the implementation of internal controls to deter misapplication and or misappropriation of physical and financial assets. In other words, stealing. So safeguarding and protecting your practice assets and information is just one more aspect of dentistry that needs to be revisited and upgraded on a regular basis. So here to give us an update on the most recent issues in protecting your practice, practice assets is this month's Crown Council Mentor of the Month Certified Fraud Examiner, Bryant Truitt. Bryant, welcome back. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you again. We uh, and, have always appreciated. Uh, at, um, we've always appreciated your in, we've appreciated your input over the years. I think you and I have known each other now for over 20 years, and things continue to change in this landscape. So we appreciate you uh, taking the time today to give us an update on some topics that continue to evolve that everyone needs to be uh, be aware of. So. Perhaps we could start by talking about insurance. Uh, a lot of changes there, obviously, nationally in, in insurance. So let's start with this. Whether a practice accepts assignment or you know, is contracted or not contracted, every practice has to deal with insurance issues in one way or another. So can you define for us clearly what insurance fraud is and what you see are the most common things that practices can be doing that could be considered insurance fraud, whether they're intentionally doing it or not. I'd be happy to do so. Uh, first, let me say that I am, as you know, I'm not an attorney or a CPA. I'm, uh, and that said, I, uh, let's get into this. The definition is that fraud is any act of uh, deception or misrepresentation of fact made for the purpose of uh, gaining an unauthorized benefit. It can be money, it can be property, but in this instance we're going to talk specifically about insurance fraud. And the acts of insurance fraud and abuse involve three particular areas, intent, deception, and unlawful gain. Now, it can originate from several sources. It can originate from the doctor from team members, and also from guarantors because they, a guarantor, can call and redirect the check to themselves. They can submit a claim. If they are submitting the claim on their behalf, they can either change the codes on the claim by getting a, a claim form off online, or they can add claim numbers to it. So uh, the codes that you have, I would uh, protect yourselves by not letting patients fill out the claim, but if you're going to provide them that ability, provide them the claim already made out and draw a line down the, the uh, page so that they cannot go back and fill in additional codes. And that has happened and we have run across that. By the way, the areas that we're going to talk about that you've asked me to address, we've had instances in every single one of them, and I will give examples as time permits. Now, the fraud and abuse involving the doctors typically involve business acts that are inconsistent and uh, are not legitimate uh, financial practices 
that can result in additional or unnecessary costs to the insurance company. And the, the group that is providing the benefit are to the insured. So it, it's the employer, the insurance company, and it, in some instances, actually the employee. It also is possible that the insured may suffer from a lack of needed or incorrect or deficient care as a result of, of what uh, transactions, inappropriate transactions took place. And the number one reason, and this is the big one, is that performing clinical services that are not necessary or justified, I'll go back to the, the claims that uh, I mentioned earlier, also the waiver of co-pays, and this is what you asked me specifically about, the waiver of the co-pays are deductible. Now those can result in a change in fees charged by the dentist, inconsistent with what the insurance carrier believes is being charged. So this can be as a result of the team member without knowledge or the doc with the doctor or with knowledge of the doctor just trying to be nice or they feel sorry for the patient or other reasons, and other reasons can be potential inappropriate activity. Number two, uh, the write-offs, adjustments, and discounts, as you well know, is the number one reasons doctors go broke. So it's an area that needs to be continuously um, uh, have oversight of, and we must remember also uh, in Medicaid practices, you cannot take off co-pays. There is no co-pays in Medicaid, and we do Medicaid office, uh, audits also. So we also have the potential of unlicensed uh, individuals in the uh, uh, practices performing procedures, and if that happens and it's picked up by an, an audit from one of the insurance companies and the two that are most famous for this type of audit is Delta and Blue Cross Blue Shield. And if they pick it up, then there's other issues that have to be uh, addressed. Another typical area that you get into is the unbundling of claims. That's where you're submitting several per se, uh, procedures separately to receive higher reimbursements. That is uh, a common area in doing Medicaid off, uh, audits that we find that is happening and the, uh, the government is, is really looking at those now, and they have the ability electronically to pick that kind of thing up. Um, splitting time periods, this is not uncommon. We have found in the years we've been doing this that, well, the, the benefits are running out. We'll split it between two years. Uh, we'll put part of it through this year, and we'll wait until next year. And that is inappropriate. You cannot do that. And if you get audited, that will you'll get dinged for that big time. So what you're saying, also, Ryan, is you, it's, it's the end of the year right now. So if I did all the work, the end of the year, but I said, look, we'll we'll bill part of this next year. So yeah, you, you when, can't do you that. You can't do that, right? Obviously. And but I know a lot of practices. Uh, let me rephrase that. It is not uncommon for us to find that, particularly in uh, family practices that have been in, uh, in, in practice for you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and they are sympathetic to the patient's ability to only have X amount of benefit left, but they need the dentistry, so they'll split the, the fee to try to accommodate the, the patient because there might be someone laid off in the family, and lack of benefits, et cetera, et cetera. But that is inappropriate. And, misrepresent, and that goes into misrepresenting dates of service. That's where it's covered, and it, it just cannot be done that way. So you have unbundling and you have upcoding. Now, upcoding, I, I, we've run into this, and I'm thinking of one in Boston that we saw of this where the uh, the practitioner, um, the doctor, did a three-surface restoration and billed for a, a, a crown. That type of thing is serious, and you can get in a lot of trouble doing that. So there are issues there that you just cannot do. 
and it I can give more examples uh, of that type of thing, you know, like doing a profi and charging for um, uh, uh, periodontal uh, examination and, and procedures. So it's it's a very critical area. One of the ways to prevent this type of thing is to make everybody in the practice aware of the fact that this type of thing is against the law. We cannot do it and and make it a very public issue. That makes everybody on notice that we are going to be strictly uh, ethical, honest, et cetera, uh, transparent, and and through training, make your people aware. Now, it's we have found uh, instances where the office managers have changed the codes when they submit the claims in trying to help the doctor during tough economic times. It's still, that is inappropriate. You can't do that. We've also found instances where they've gone in and reactivated patients and filed a, uh, right after a patient may have left the office or uh, is now deceased and submit a claim, and that's a false claim. And uh, that is uh, absolutely against the federal statute. The False Claims Act is, is very serious, and that goes back to Civil War days. And I also uh, visited with uh, Lois Banta about this, and uh, it is definitely a serious problem if you do uh, this type of insurance, uh, let us say, um, uh, activity, and you, you cannot... You just cannot do it. Now, if you do put, if you do wish to give a discount, you can give the discount, but you have to put it on the claim form that you gave a 10% discount. And uh, some carriers won't pick it up. Some carriers will pick it up. The best decision I think you can make is, is not to do it and because you really don't want these insurance companies coming and, and visiting you. I'll tell you that right now. So, question um, Brian, yeah, so just one last, last, last clarifying question. On, on the topic of just not collecting the copay or writing off the patient balance, so essentially just saying, we'll just take whatever the insurance pays us, you don't owe us anything. What's the consequence of that? Well, if you take just what the insurance company pays you, uh, that's fine. But what you can't do is uh, collect a different, let's say, the, uh, the policy calls for you're not collecting a copay from the patient, but you collect a copay from the patient, that's inappropriate activity. You cannot do that. The contract clearly uh, states that no copay is due from the patient, and that's what you have to do. But there are instances, and we have run into this uh, in, in pedo practices, that they try to collect a copay on a small balance that is uh, due, but it has been uh, uh, the practice is on notice not to collect a copay, but they go ahead and they try to collect it. Well, that copay never makes it into the uh, doctor's account in, in, in some instance, in some instances, and uh, that's theft, and it's inappropriate, and it's illegal for the practice to be doing that. Got it. All right, let's move on to uh, HIPAA. <clears throat> Everybody is all paranoid about HIPAA compliance, which you know, it's, it's there for a purpose to protect patient information. Can you give us the reality of this when it comes to HIPAA compliance? Is anybody really watching? Uh, and what's really required? And, and, and do you know of a practice that's ever been inspected? Okay, let's take the question and pieces. Um, HIPAA started doing audits and phase one audits were done in 2013 for the first time. Up to that time, uh, no actual audits had been done and they were reacting to complaints. But due to budgetary restraints in 2013, they started with uh, doing audits, and their first one was done in uh, Kentucky against Blue Shield, and they were 
richly, richly rewarded by doing that. So they did more audits, and out of 115 audits they did, they found only 11% of the, of the uh, entities were in compliance, and that just enriched their ability. So they started working toward doing phase two, which is going to be 350 audits, and 50 of those will be business associates, and we'll talk about that in a moment. No, they're not doing audits at the current time. They, all the audits have been placed on hold since 2014 because they haven't come up with all the protocols that are necessary to execute the audits, and they have a problem with their computer software. Surprise, surprise. Where have we heard that before? But the audits will be done. It's just on hold at this time, and the entities that they're really focusing on are hospitals and large uh, clinics. They also are auditing some DSOs. You asked if any had been audited, any practices had been audited. Uh, yes, DSOs have been audited. I'm thinking of one in particular in Washington State, which they... Uh, found significant violations. As far as small practices, I have a, a friend who was with the uh, HIPAA legal uh, team in Chicago's office, and he's since left and gone with the Walgreens. But yes, they have, and they have, they have to react to complaints. So your concern here is disgruntled employees turning you into HIPAA as not being in compliant. And uh, I would highly recommend that the doctors do not let that happen. And to keep that from happening, there are several things that need to be done. One, and it's really uh, key, is to have your training program and your manuals up to date. If you don't have a structured annual training program either being done by people internally in your practice or you're using an outside uh, entity to help you with your uh, compliance of HIPAA and OSHA, I would strongly encourage you to do so and have a compliance officer. Now, the compliance officer does not have to be a member of the practice. It can be the outside contractor or whomever you're using that is, is uh, uh, capable and uh, specializes in HIPAA uh, audits and, and uh, compliance procedures and training. There's several areas that they're looking at, and I can give you those for 2015 where they are spending their time. Uh, this is uh, very fresh information uh, as of last week when a seminar was held in, in Austin regarding this. And their first area is security. They are deaf on uh, device encryption media controls, data transmission security protocols, and privacy. And I'll, we'll talk about privacy again in a couple of minutes. The big one for them, though, is doing security rule risk analysis, security rule risk analysis. And those have to be done yearly. And it's not written in the, in the, uh, the regs, but you've got to retain those audits for six years. And it's a gotcha thing. Uh, you've got to be very careful about how you handle data, and we're going to come back to that. We also are now running into encryption at, re at rest, encryption at rest, and that is the data that is in the system being at rest in your software, in your computer system, but not being properly encrypted and not being properly managed. And that managed is leaving your server on at night where people can get in and hack into the system when you're not there or on holidays. And it's amazing how many people leave their systems on and unguarded and they haven't checked to see if the system is properly backing up, it doesn't have the proper uh, firewalls, and people can get into the system. And 
also uh, they are also uh, asking now about what are you doing about anti-fraud procedures you need to have an anti-fraud uh, program and that's uh, part of their pro uh, new protocols they're looking at and the other one is cyber theft and we'll talk about that right now um, one of the big problems that was brought up at this uh, seminar last week is Windows XP Windows XP as you know is no longer being supported and is unable to be secured during a data breach therefore uh, the Office of Civil Rights which is HIPAA is going to ding you and they will also ding you for any software that's running on top of XP so that's going to be an automatic violation that if you're still running Windows XP and they do audit your office or have a, a complaint that you're doing it from a disgruntled employee or someone wishing to do you harm they're going to come out they have to come out and investigate that and if they do and they find it they will ding you so yes there are audits being done on practices but on a complaint basis at the current time now getting back to the issues of, of security which is uh, a major one which I do have to chuckle a little bit about because they can't even protect their own software their own <laughs> exactly yeah but we won't <laughs> they don't have to pay fines and I'll talk about fines in a minute which are pretty shocking but the hackers have really been active in software of healthcare. Actually, more breaches and more individuals' uh, patient, personal patient histories were stolen in healthcare than in all other breaches in all other entities in the United States, both public and private sectors. So, healthcare has been the biggest uh, one that have been hit the most and what they're now doing interesting uh, I uh, was uh, privileged to be in a meeting uh, two weeks ago regarding this subject and you can now go online online at Amazon and you can buy a USB that looks just like a credit card Citibank or American Express it looks exactly like a credit card but it is a USB and they're also using large capacity USBs and they're going into clinics hackers and uh, influencing personnel and paying personnel in practices and clinics just as they have in, in commercial businesses giving them a USB going in and having them download the database and they pay them either ten to twenty dollars per uh, patient or customer and they get the database and in that they get the information necessary for prescriptions and they get all the personal information and this is a increasing problem with private information where they're putting in the, the firewalls and things but you still got humans involved in the equation and that is the weakness they can pay these people uh, employees lower level people or even upper level people to copy the database on a USB and give it to them well that needs to be covered in your team manuals and in your job descriptions that that is inappropriate activity so, so right on that on that point let's talk about the prescription part how do you prevent prescription fraud well I'll get to that one in, in, a, in a minute that's uh, another one of the items a little bit uh, further down but we'll talk about that and the, the problems that you have are passwords just as you do in, in prescription fraud or passwords and, and access levels also it's highly recommended now that you do not carry personal health information on cell phones and that is a particularly among young people or people that have elders in care centers that type of thing they carry all their personal uh, the, the care of the parents 
healthcare information on their cell phone, and that's not recommended because of, of uh, they're not protected properly, and it can be uh, breached. So there's a whole area of HIPAA that is becoming uh, more concerning. Also, you've got uh, 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 business associates, which would include vendors and, and cleaning people and and uh, anyone that comes into that practice, you've got to have a business associate agreement. And yes, they do check those when they do come on the premises. So does that help you on that? It does, very much so. Um, let's move on to credit card security, uh, which has been big in the news in the last year with some major companies and government agencies that have had credit card database breaches. So what's required today of a dental practice in terms of credit card number security and how are things changing in that area? Okay, I, uh, I have a resource that I use uh, in, in, the, uh, in our business. Uh, Ken Givens is a 23-year-old expert in this, and a 23-year-old. He's been in it 23 years. He's not 23 years old. And the guy is a recognized expert and does uh, expert testimony on these cases. And so I reached out to Ken, and it's a very enlightening subject. Uh, he filled in some blanks for me. Um, as of October the 1st, when the new law kicked in, 28% of the dental practices were in compliance with the, having the new units, and medical was 25%. And the, the situation is, it, it's a people problem. Even with the new equipment, where the, the chip is in the uh, card, we are not using the PIN system, which is uh, in Asia, Europe, and the rest of the world. The United States is still behind the, uh, the curve. And you have dental software not able to handle the and, uh, and processors. Some processors are not able to handle the chip cards yet. And there was, a, uh, there was a notice sent out from one of the software companies that only uh, fraud in dentistry is only 0.0003%. Well, that's true from people coming into the practice and providing you a fraudulent uh, credit card uh, to complete a transaction. It is not true, not true about the amount of fraud that can happen internally in the practice. We have to remember that 80% of the fraud and embezzlement, waste, and abuse is internal, so we have to keep that in mind. The magnetic strip on the cards can be easily defeated, and that is certainly a, command, uh, a problem. But this whole thing about this new chip in the card was generated through MasterCard and Visa. And the reason they wanted to do that is they were getting pressure from the banks to see about the chip and to move the liability to processors. And the processors, in turn, move the liability to retailers about the fraud being generated on the cards with just the magnetic strip. It was not in the best interest of the consumer, I can tell you that, or the retailer. And the retailers now have to stand for the loss if the fraudulent card is presented, and uh, they are going to have to pick up the, the loss at the, at the direction of MasterCard or Visa, and its, it's, uh, its system is not 100% protective. And the reason for that are the people. The card is still given to the person in the practice, and they can run the card through the little machine because the practices are going to continue using the unit that is the swipe unit that is uh, on the side of the monitor that is plugged into the USB port on the side of the monitor. So it's not a separate unit sitting on the counter where the, the uh, patient puts the card into the unit it is still, in most cases, given to the employee. Well, if the employee has a photographic memory or can copy the numbers off the card, uh, they can still run transactions, such as if they have uh, 
the numbers on record for sending out a charge at the end of each month for financial arrangements are I'll pay you 50% now and you can take the rest out uh, another charge later in the month, those kinds of issues. So it's a people issue. As long as you have the human element involved in this transaction, yes, the fraud will go down, but it won't go down totally. Now, also, there is another concern. Not all of the softwares let you isolate the uh, credit card transaction uh, process in the software where you have a different password or a different access level code so that you can isolate it where only one or two people can put in charges. You can do that by isolating the entire access level of certain areas of the computer, but you cannot just isolate credit card transactions at this time. The other, another problem is you can still put in transactions manually under the new system, and that needs to be covered with your individual uh, processor to, and software vendor on your practice management software, Dentrix, Softint, whatever. And uh, the other problem is, is that it is it's, it's capable – you can do the transactions, but not all the softwares provide you uh, a great level of protection of doing uh, corrections of errors, fat finger errors that you put in. Some of them are quite easy. Others are not so easy under the new chip system. So you need to have a lot of knowledge about how to use the equipment that you are installing. So therefore... Uh, there's reason to be concerned, and there is insurance now coming out from uh, insurance companies such as uh, Zurich or Farmers or uh, Gecko, uh, Travelers. Various insurance companies are now coming out with uh, uh, insurance to help cover uh, breaches and uh, errors and omissions on this type of uh, software. So you, you do need to look into that. If you need additional information on this, I can uh, uh, provide the, the contact information on, on Ken Gibbons in uh, Austin on this. Okay? Sounds good. Um, let's go back to um, prescription fraud again. Uh, okay, let me... Big issue. Let me, let me all right, the next one is prescription fraud. All right. When we got into this business 20 years ago, um, we ran into this virtually the, uh, uh, right out of the box, and it was very interesting. It was in California at the time. But now we run into it about 20% of the time on our, on our reviews that we do in practices boots on the ground reviews and we turn this problem up probably at least 20% of the time and in one instance we turn this up in a large pedo ortho practice and they had five locations and we found a very active drug ring of pain pills up to 2000 a month being purchased and and being sold through flea markets and the authorities came in and, and took out nine people out of the practice. So there is no perfect solution. Here again, it is a people problem. And one of the problems that you have here is that doctors can be charged as an accessory to a, a prescription crime, and it carries both civil and criminal uh, concerns. It also can lead to a very uh, difficult time before your state dental board, and it's, it's a real area of concern, and there's some things that can be done to prevent this. Number one, and this is one of the things that I have jumped up and down about for 20 years, there is no good business reason for any practice in this country or Canada to have signatory stamps, doctor signatory stamps in the practice. There's, there, there is no reason for it. In one practice in, in uh, Massachusetts, we found 11 signature stamps. 
we just finished a practice in Houston where the individual used the signatory stamp to steal a great deal of money, over $200,000. So there is no reason to have these things. Get rid of them. Also, for goodness sakes, please lock up your, your, your prescription pads. In the state of Texas, as an example, uh, you're, well, you're in Houston today, as an example. Uh, class 2 and Class 3 uh, uh, drugs, there's no, there's no reason to have any prescription pad out laying on the front desk, laying in an operatory where they're so-called handy. No, they should be locked up. The new safety paper should be locked up that you buy from people like uh, 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 Medical Arts Press. You, you cannot leave this stuff out. This stuff has retail value on the street. A simple, a very simple uh, prescription pad can be sold on the street for 500 bucks at a, at a uh, flea market. A two or three can be sold for 1500 bucks. They're used for work permits. They're used to, uh, uh, to get people uh, their kids out of school for a holiday. Don't do it. Now, they should be using the electronic prescriptions that are within the computer system, Dentrixoft, Eaglesoft, whatever, because it goes into the system and it cannot be deleted. So, so use good sense on these things. Now, they should be scanned into the uh, patient ledger. And the doctor only should sign them. Don't let someone else uh, uh, sign the things. I, I've seen, stood there and watched hygienists sign these things for the, for the doctor. You can't do that. So only uh, the doctor should sign them. You should never have a non-professional licensed uh, 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 employee sign them. They... they you can have other doctors sign them, but you should not have anyone that is not professionally licensed. And I, I'm even further than that. I don't want anybody but the doctor signing them today. It also should be in your team manual and your uh, position descriptions about this type of thing that, that uh, ones like uh, Barbara Freak produces. So you need training on this thing every year. I, it, it's really bizarre to me to see what is going on out there. And we'll also just touch real quickly about DEA. DEA has to come out and investigate any time they get a complaint on controlled substances. So here again, you can have a disgruntled employee calling in and filing a complaint, and they've got to come out. Well, they'll be looking for security. They're going to be looking at your DEA log. And we've seen logs that are, haven't been written in for years. So you need to be very cautious about that. Now, I've gone out and I've looked at several states on, on prescription regulations, and it varies by state. The doctors have to register uh, to get into the, uh, the state system, and only certain types of doctors can get into the system, uh, like veterinaries cannot in most states. So the state registers now can track prescriptions nationwide except for the state of Missouri, which is they still haven't finished their system. So doctors can trace these things, and they should be looking at these at least every six months. And the employees in their practices should be aware of the fact that the doctor can monitor all prescriptions through the state registry system in the state of Texas it's monitored by the Texas Department of Public Safety. In New York State, it's through the Department of Health. Uh, in uh, New Mexico, it's through the state police. So it's varied by state. But you can go in and look at exactly what, what classification of drugs are monitored in the registry and be aware of the fact that you can monitor them. You should check them. And yes, we've had cases where the, the registry has proven very beneficial in, in cases that we have worked, okay?
Got so it. You need to you need to do that. All right. Uh, what else? Let's move on to. Does that answer uh, your question? It very much answers my question. Um, let's move on to credit balances. Um, we find practices that will carry patient credit balances sometimes for years. Can you explain? Uh, and this is a state by state thing, but can you explain? how long you're allowed to carry a credit balance and why, and then um, what you're supposed to do on a regular basis to stay up to date on that. Okay, uh, you're exactly correct. This varies state by state. Uh, where they are monitored in the state, where you turn them in to the state is different state by state. Uh, first, there is a National Association of Unclaimed Property Administrators that you can use. Uh, your state dental association should be able to help you telling you where to go in that state. In the state of Texas, it's the comptroller's office. Uh, but you know, like everything else, uh, majority of things in this country, it, it varies state by state. Uh, you go in and you can look at those sites and you can find out who the people are that have had money turned in. Now then, the term of leaving this money in the practice is, is uh, different state by state. In some states it's three years. some states it's longer than that. In some states it's less. Now, one of the things that you need to be able to do to monitor and manage this money which can be sizable, it can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Minnesota, we found over a quarter of a million dollars in, in, in unclaimed money or credit balances due. You need, the doctor personally needs to find out how to run a credits-only report in his AR, his or her AR. Uh, as an example, Dentrix, you can run a credit-only report Largest to smallest balance, that is the best way to do it. Others, you have to put it on an Excel spreadsheet and, and pull it out and look at it. You should do that at least twice a year. See who's on there. Look at the balances. See who you have as, as uh, patients of record that are still active. They have appointments or treatment plans, I like to say, for this type of activity of at least a, a no older than a year, that is active production. Contact those patients, particularly toward the end of the year or particularly when you get a new associate uh, or partner. Look at the production. It is production waiting to happen that's not being monitored. But back to the uh, uh, point that you made, you really got to look at these things because uh, it is a very fruitful area for inappropriate misapplication and misappropriation of practice assets. There are doctors who do not really understand what the credit balances are. Bear in mind, doctors, that they are in your current column of your AR report and they lower the balance at the bottom of the report as to the amount of money that is truly owed you. The credit balances subtract from the active balances that are owed. It makes the balance smaller but it also makes the balance smaller for the total amount of money that's owed your practice, and it's a bogus number. So if you use that to report uh, performance to um, incentive programs or practice management companies that you're working with or CPAs or bank loans, you're producing an erroneous report. It's bogus. So you need to run a credit-only report. If you need help, Call your practice uh, uh, support center and get help. Now then, uh, back to the point that Steve made. It is uh, unclaimed money. It belongs to the patient. I would strongly recommend that you contact your dental association, uh, the state. Find out what the regulations are for your state because you do not want to be violating the state law on, on unclaimed uh, property balances. Does that answer your question, Steve? Very much answers the question. Um, you are a certified fraud examiner. Oh, oh, let me point out one other thing. Okay, yep. Can be a serious issue. 
we also do transition uh, reviews. Yeah. And it can be a serious issue in practices that are going through a transition review. Yeah. It can get into arguments as to who is responsible for the credit balances. Yeah. And that is the time that you want to have on your team a CPA and a transition lawyer, uh, healthcare attorney that is really smart about the business side of practices and how to isolate that money, pull it out, put it in an escrow account, approach the state, look at it, look at the patients that are going to be split if they're going to split patients. You have to manage that activity as a separate activity. It is not the patient's it is not the practice's money. It's not part of the assets. It can be a liability, and it really has to be uh, with very cool heads looked at so that one of the partners doesn't say, well, you owe me $50,000, and I'm not gonna, uh, you're going to have to lower uh, your share of the business, and I get a check for $50,000. Wrong. It is not his money. It is the patient's money. So you, you need to take a slightly different tact at this. If you have a transition broker, uh, which I would recommend, involved, seek their advice and counsel. But it is not either doctor's money. Okay? So the easiest thing is to keep it cleaned up every year so you don't have an accumulating problem. That's, I think, the... Key that, that's true. That is an excellent point because if you have someone in the practice that is wanting to do the practice harm, they can steal that money, and there is an easy way to do it. And I'm, I will not tell you who the phone call is. <laughs> good idea. That's a good idea. Okay, you know, so hire me. Here. I can go in and steal money out of practices every day. Easy. Right. So <laughs> and that happens that to be one of the ways. Absolutely. Okay, so you're, you're a certified fraud exec. You've done this for over, you know, 20 years. Why is employee dishonesty, why does it continue to grow? Because it continues to be on the rise. What's going on? Well, it, you know, that's a very interesting and, and broad subject. And uh, I'll, I'll compress it down into know, eight or nine points, uh, whatever it might be. And, and it's a very concerning thing. Uh, you know, it's a terrible thing to say that this, that um, our team, which we cover every software in dentistry and worked in hundreds of practices, and we see a lot. We never see everything. Uh, you're not going to stop this type of activity. Uh, the human mind is, is an amazing creative uh, uh, engine of, of activity. But that saying, the number one thing, and I've talked to a lot of people, including my, my uh, associates at the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and right now it appears to be the number one reason is the intense financial pressure that has been brought on by the uh, economic crisis. And as a, uh, a distinct part of that is the layoffs are so pervasive. Now, when you look at layoffs, the majority of families in this country are two-income families. And one of the parties are laid off can have huge impact, both benefits and income. And I'll comment on that in, in another way in a minute. What this does also is it leaves in organizations a, a huge area of concern with internal controls. And I'm also certified in internal control uh, and uh, uh, all internal controls. And what it does is it, lo lose it, it leaves a big void there. And people can then take advantage of those voids or they'll try to double up and put multiple internal controls on people that have not either been trained, don't have the time to properly administer them, 
you can just take that and expand it as you as you wish to. But the main thing is the the economic pressure. Another reason is that the owner of the business. I don't care if economic times are super or bad. They're not providing the oversight. Either they don't understand what oversight really entails, which we don't have time to go into, nor are the types of internal controls that they should be installing and monitoring. CPA firms don't provide it. A lot of practice management folks don't uh, provide it. We provide it as part of our reviews. It can also be the culture. The owner is doing it, so hey, anything goes. If, if it if it's the culture of the of the business, no matter how good you are and how straight you are, and I've got a great example of this. Uh, if we have time, I'll be happy to talk about it. But we did a a, a very large nonprofit where, unfortunately, this was this was done. So it it can be the the culture it can be the delegation of duties you're not delegating properly and this is common in in medical and dental practices the the delegation isn't right they don't go back the doctor doesn't check the delegation of duties every year like they should or every six months they they think once it's installed it'll stay there no every time they change front desk people or key people in the back they should look at the delegation of duties with your job uh, descriptions and your employee manuals. I know Barbara Freed stresses that, and I certainly do. It's one of my soapbox issues. Also, the lack of cross-training. It's amazing to us, the lack of cross-training in practices and the lack of team manuals and, and position descriptions that deal with this issue, and it, it needs to be an uh, integral part of your manual. And the lack of uh, trust but verified techniques but one of the other things that we find so interesting is uh, the practices are considered to be families. So team members are very hesitant. They see something. They get a gut hunch that something's going on. They don't say anything. In interviewing uh, team members and practices, it is absolute fact. The vast majority of the time, there's more than one person that knows what's going on in the practice when it comes to fraud, embezzlement, waste, and abuse. They just don't know quite what to do with the information. They're afraid to say anything, or they're too embarrassed to say anything. So they just they don't say anything. And two other areas that are interesting here is in hard times, you find increased opportunity, increased ra rationalization. Man, my family is just underwater. I can't make no, uh, payments on my house. They'll never know that I'm taking $500,000 a month out of this business. Oh, but in time, they will. Normally, a, a fraud is, uh, comes to the surface in about two and a half to three years, and payroll fraud comes to the surface in about two years. And I've got great examples for all of those. And the amount of payroll, payroll fraud we find now is on the increase, by the way, just as prescriptions are. So it is absolute fact that 80% of the problems are internal. Your, your single biggest area of risk is your employees. And we address that every time. Now, the second front, this is interesting, the second front in this question is cyber threats. And we've, deal, uh, we've dealt with those a little earlier, so I won't go over those again. But you've you got real issues with cyber threat today. Another problem is younger members of the workforce. The, uh, the workforce has become younger. They may have decreased support from the family due to the economy. But we have to remember that thieves don't steal to save the money. And people don't know how to steal at birth. So where are they learning it? They learn it in later life. So we have to be diligent. We have to be on top of it every day. You have to have trust but verify. You've got to have monitoring. You've got to be uh, asking questions, and we'll touch on that in a little bit too. 
Does that help you? Very, very helpful. Could you just as a quick review, because um, I've heard you talk about this over the years, can you give us the typical profile of an embezzler? Because it, it was the first time you shared that with me, it was shocking um, because <laughs> it, it was totally different than what I thought. Can you do that real quick, just kind of typical profile that you see? Um, the typical profile, it can be, and we found instances of this, it's hard to believe, of, of wives, uh, mothers, daughters. Uh, it's that person, the number one thing we look for is that hidden financial need. That's the number one thing we look for. Then there's certain red flags we look for, which some of them I talk about and some I, I, I just will not uh, talk about. But there are, uh, the profile of the embezzler, it, it can be anyone of any age, uh, any nationality, any gender. Um, we've, we've seen, uh, it, it, it's amazing the, the, the cross-sections. Generally, if I was to say a general statement, it is generally your seasoned, most tenured employee or team member. Generally, they, uh, if, if you're familiar with DISC, I know you are, and, and I'm certainly a strong believer in it. Uh, they're a combination of D personality and, and other uh, segments of DISC, but the predominant is a D personality. They are ones who typically have uh, access to all areas of the software, which is a, a terrible thing uh, to provide anyone for their own protection and for the protection of the practice, like having administrative rights. Administrative rights should be only in the hands of the doctor and someone outside of the practice that in case he's injured or she is injured, they can get into the software. Um, can be an employee that works 24-7, 365. I'm a strong believer, uh, both internal controls and in uh, software. Never permit the, uh, anyone on your staff of having uh, remote access. I don't care what the business reason is. I've run into everything from illness to pregnancy to broken legs. Uh, well, I can work from home. No, that is problematic. Uh, they should not be permitted to come into the office when they're on vacation. You should have people working their position when they're on vacation. They can be uh, family members have a crisis situation such as out of work or health or whatever, and we've, we've seen wide variations of that. Uh, they are people who want to have absolute control over everything. Oh, you don't need to bother the doctor with that. You come to me. I'll take care of the doctor. Doctor is taking care of the clinical. You know, that's his first love. And I will take care of it, and I will tell the doctor. Never gets to the doctor, uh, the information. Uh, it can be situations where they want to do personal work for the doctor, like taking care of his personal bills or taking care of his retirement account. Don't permit that. It's not in the best interest. I can give you examples of all of those. It can be issues where if you have a question on payroll, come to me. I'll give you a quick, perfect example of this. We ran into an instance in a case just recently in Houston where the uh, office manager showed preferential treatment to one group of the employees and gave raises and overtime pay, and the other people in the office did not receive any of that. She showed tremendous uh, preference to a certain group of employees. She also went back into the system and pulled out part-time employees or employees that were on uh, uh, temporary there due to uh, uh, fill-in positions, and she issued payroll checks to them, and they weren't even there uh, during that time that that were in question. And she cashed those checks at a cash checking service. So uh, you, you need to be diligent about that. 
Uh, it can be employees <clears throat> that have an addiction to problems such as drugs, alcohol, gambling. I've got great examples on there, all, all of that. Or they've got a family issue they're trying to take care of. So you, you need to have an open-door policy. You need to encourage people to come forward and talk to you about these things. Does that give you some of the uh, criteria of absolutely employee? Yeah, I think the thing that's been fascinating to me, I think you said in the past that the typical tenure of an investor is I can't, I can't hear you, sir. I'm sorry. Um, the, the thing that's um, fascinating me in the past is you said that the typical tenure of an embezzler is seven years. Correct. Correct. Which is, I think that's surprising to most people to find out about that. So can you give well, us I a think, quick read? I, I, uh, that's, a, that's a good point, Steve. And real quickly, let me comment on that. I'm glad you brought that, uh, that uh, item up. What they typically do is they like to go from practice to practice that has the same software that they've been in a practice before. They also are going to kind of go along with the flow for, say, 30, 60, 90 days. can be six months. Uh, we had one that lasted nine months. And then they, they take a small amount of money, say $50 or $100, and they wait to see if anybody sees that that money is missing, typically cash, and then they go into other activities. And if that money is not discovered, then they, they really go at it. Typically today, unlike 20 years ago when we might find one or two schemes working in a practice, Today, we can find anywhere from four, six, seven schemes working in the practice. Wow. And you and I have talked about this before on a case that you and I are familiar with, where we found seven schemes working in a practice. And what they do, and it's, it's, these people are very smart, they'll focus on one scheme, and that's the scheme they really care about. But if they feel that pressure is coming or somebody's beginning to look at what they're doing on this particular scheme or this particular area of interest, they'll move to another scheme because, you see, they become used to that level of income that they're stealing out of the practice. So their level of, of life enjoyment and commitment has risen. Now they're at this other level, and they've got to maintain that level due to social pressure or whatever it might be. So now they have other schemes working. And they'll move from scheme to scheme to ensure that they're able to maintain that lifestyle level. Okay? And so today when we do our boots on the ground, you can't get all this stuff through the Internet. It, it, it's impossible to do a really thorough job just through the Internet. And we find anywhere from typically three, four to six schemes working at one time, as we did in this case recently in Houston. And once you recognize this trend, we now look for certain things going on in the practice, certain red flags. If we find those red flags, then we got it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes total, total sense. All right, you have given us a great start. I think, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it here, Brian. This is going to be part one. You and I are going to do part two because we have a tremendous amount of additional material to go over. <clears throat> so I, um, I appreciate your taking the time today to get us started in just these areas. You've given us a task list that would, is going to take some time for everybody to work through just checking on those areas that you've, you've started on, and there's more. So with your permission, can we invite you back to do part two of our discussion today? Well, we're very passionate about it, Steve, and, and I did not uh, realize the, the, the time had flown by that quickly, but uh, I'll be honored and it will be a pleasure to be with you at any time, at any time. And it is very important that doctors know about this, particularly in hard economic times. And I thank you so much for the opportunity. I know the doctors uh, do, and we certainly do. And It'll be an honor to join you again at any time that you would like to continue and do part two. 
Great. With that, Brent, will you, uh, would you mind sharing uh, contact information for those who have questions or suspect that they may have a problem? Uh, where can they confidentially contact you for, uh, for help or for uh, uh, advice? My cell number is 210-241-6329. And my email address is brightan, B-R-Y-T-A-N, 42, at com, And you can also go online and, and look at LinkedIn under my name, and you'll find uh, a, a presentation on what we do and other elements of, that might be of interest to you. And it will be an honor and a pleasure to visit with anyone about these subjects. And we're here to help you as we have been for 20 years. Fantastic. Brian, thanks again for all of your help today and look forward to having you back here shortly for uh, uh, the rest of the update. So thanks, thanks so much for being our mentor of the month. Thank you, Steve.